Jonathan, I think that our new podcast intro should be something like, it's been too long since we last spoke. How are you doing? We always seem to have these big gaps this season, uh, this season four, can you believe, of crosswords where, where we're always missing each other in between weeks. I've been on vacation. You've been busy. You've been doing a show? Been doing all sorts of things. Yeah, my first musical, and it's been hours of rehearsal each night. It's, uh, it's a little, it's been quite intense, but fantastic. An excellent learning experience. Well, this week, Jonathan, I want to welcome you and our audience to another episode of Crossword Perspectives. This is one of those ones where we, you know, have a bit of a longer chat and not just between the two of us. This week, we have a very special guest with us and uh, I want to welcome to the show, Aaron Gustafson. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm doing well, thanks. It's nice to be here. Aaron, for those who don't know, is he works on the Edge team at Microsoft and Aside from that, he also uh, is an editor for W3C and a list apart, and he's got this new project. I think it's fairly new, uh, called The Web We Want. I've recently discovered it anyway, so it's new to me. Uh, Aaron, all of this work in and around the open web, you've obviously got a passion for it. Why Would you be able to introduce yourself to uh, the Crossword audience and uh, tell us a little bit about... What sparked this passion? That's a good question. Um, gosh. So I'll, I'll go back a ways. So I, I came to the web to, to start building things around about 96. Um, and I was a music journalist at the time and was running a publication. And my, my whole motivation was to bring that online uh, from being just a, you know, a, a zine, basically, to, uh, to being a web presence fairly early on. Um, and I had a friend that that built the first version of the site, and I was like, okay, I, I want to do other things. And so I basically taught myself web in order to be able to do that. Um, but mm-hmm. then I I became very interested in it and decided that that was sort of the direction I wanted to head. I I got gotten kind of burned out uh, on music journalism and kind of going around and seeing concerts all the time and and oh, meeting, meeting famous a, people and you know a horrible that. life. Yeah, yeah. Going to the Cannes Film Festival and yeah, all that, all that sort of stuff. It was so rough, but um, but no, I got I got burned out on it and uh, decided that I wanted to to kind of focus on on doing web stuff. Um, and I think a lot of my, I don't know, I feel like a lot of it's happenstance and a lot of it has been just colored by the experiences I had coming onto the web and um, kind of starting out. I mean, I I think to my first attempt to go online that wasn't like AOL. Uh, my first, my first attempt at like opening a, a browser and stuff like that in college, um, where I had to, um, I had to go online using, um, was it Gopher? I think it was Gopher. Um, basically I didn't, we, my university didn't have, uh, the point to point protocol PPP in order to be able to connect my computer in my room to the servers in order to be able to go out and, and browse the web in, wow. in sort of a, a traditional way. Um, so I had to use the command line. And so my first experience of the web was literally seeing a black screen with white text and it's saying image, 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 image. And I was like, this web <laughs> thing is total BS. Um, what, what year do you think this is? This, this was probably like 95, maybe mm. something like that, 94, 95. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I remember going to Sony.com because I was big you know, music fan and was, was trying to look into some of the like music and stuff like that, what they were producing. And I, I'm sure at the time it was all image maps. Right. And right. So none of that, was, none of that was working. Um, and so I think, you know, the, that experience really colored my perception of how we should be building for the web and how we should be thinking about building experiences that are, accessible to everybody, no matter what their technology is that they're using to access the web. And so that's, that's kind of given me this broad perspective of, you know, how we should be building. And that kind of led me into the realm of progressive enhancement and uh, getting into accessibility and stuff like that as well. So, um, so yeah, th- this interest starts young. When did you first get the idea that you might be able to build a career around it? Like where did, when did that come into the picture? So, I've been kind of dabbling for a bit doing some like smaller side projects and freelancing and stuff like that, probably through around two, well, actually, no, I guess 99. So I graduated uh, from my college in 99 
And I actually went to work at the Bradenton Herald in Bradenton, Florida. Um, I went to school in Sarasota. And um, when I started there, I, I was basically one of two people who were building the website. And so mm. I would go in at 11 o'clock at night and get articles out of Quark templates, drop them into Dreamweaver, and fetch them up to the website. And there was no oh, those oversight. Were the days. Yeah, there was. Don't you miss that? I miss that. <laughs> I, I don't miss being like working from eleven until five in the morning. Oh, yeah. Um but oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean they, they were certainly yeah. they were certainly heady days. I mean there was very little oversight. I picked what went up on the website in terms of which articles were, were up there and stuff like that. Um I mean obviously informed by like the layout of the paper itself, but um yeah, wow. I mean, it was. I remember, you know, walking by desks that had the the new IMAX on them and all their pretty colors. And I remember mm. seeing magazines that were out there were like XML is the future and like all that sort of stuff. And it was it was kind of interesting. So you know, I was I was getting paid to do that. Not well. I mean, it was like twelve bucks an hour or something yep. like that. But um, but from there, um, I did I did some like IT work, and then my uh, fiance um, ended up getting into uh, Yale Divinity. And so we were looking at the prospect of moving to Connecticut and I was looking to figure out what it is that I could do up there. And I, I ended up getting hooked up with Aquent uh, as a, a company that would, would farm me out for freelance work. And so, um, you know, they were, they were basically offering me, I think at that, at that point it was like 23 bucks an hour. And I'm like, Oh, that's pretty awesome for, you know, this is the, in the midst of the dot-com bust. Right. Um, and so that was, that was really enticing. And I got to work with a lot of great companies and, and brands wow. through Aquent and, and stuff like that. And that kind of kicked off that career. And while I was working for Gartner, um, on their website, I ended up becoming more aware of web standards and the web standards project and CSS and that sort of stuff. And, um, started to get a bit involved in that. Um, I wrote my first piece for a list apart in 2003, I think. Um, and then gave my first talk on XHTML in 2004. And that was where I met Molly Holschlag and between Molly and then eventually, uh, Jeffrey Zeldman, um, when I eventually went to work for a list apart the first time, um, more doors opened. I got to do work for, uh, adaptive path and some other really awesome companies. And so it was, it was really cool to see what the potential was and to get to work on all this stuff. What prompted the, the first, uh, contribution to a list apart? Like where, where did the idea come from? Like, how did that come about? So I was playing around with, um, with tabbed interfaces. I, if I'm, if mm. I'm remembering correctly, I think the article was titled, like you can have your cake and eat it too. And basically I'd, I'd come up with this idea of how you could approach having something that an interface that would work normally and then could turn into, I think it was a tabbed interface, um, without kind of having extra ugly markup and useless links and stuff like that, that wouldn't work if the JavaScript wasn't functional. Um, and so that was sort of my first foray into that space. Um, and I remember uh, Jason Freed of 37 signals, like he and I ended up having like a, a back and forth spat over like the approach <laughs> or something like that. in the comments will list apart. Um, I think he may have even done a piece on signal versus noise. That was like a teardown of my article or something, but okay. um, yeah. <laughs> Um, so that was, that was sort of like my first, uh, foray into that space where I was starting to write. And, um, you know, I was very much inspired by folks like Doug Bowman and Dan Cederholm and, and yep. you know, Ethan Mercant and stuff like that. that now were, you had um, a writing background before that, right? I mean, I was, I was a music journalist. Yeah, like so yeah, that's, I, yeah, yeah. I was doing writing and editorial and stuff like that. So that kind of came, came naturally to me. Um, and I was just, I was super inspired by like, I, I think the first list apart piece I found was Eric Meyer's piece on using CSS for print. Um, mm. And so later on to pay homage to that piece, I ended up writing a piece about um, improving link display for print where it actually, there was a JavaScript that worked behind the scenes to take all of your links. And and so if you remember his, his this specific Eric Meyer piece that he had, he was using CSS three to inject the URLs inside parentheses in the print version of the page in order Ooh. to show you where those links went, which was beautiful, just awesome. But when I started, I was using that when I was, um, 
drafting new articles uh, and I would have my wife read them because she's also an editor. And so she was able to give me feedback and stuff, but she was like, these URLs are really getting in the way of me being able to read this because ah. I print it for her. Um, and so I was like, okay, what if I wrote a script that made those into footnote links basically? So, um, you know, it would add footnotes to the document, but only for print. And those would, would show you what, uh, what the, um, link was for, and then they would just be collected at the end. And so, yeah, I ended up doing a piece on a list apart for that. I think around about 2005 ish. Um, yeah. So, so you're writing for a list apart and, and now you're an editor, uh, currently for maybe you could describe a list apart for, for our listeners who aren't familiar. Sure. Um, I, I don't know. I, I kind of think of list apart in the same way that I think of like the New York times as a, um, sort of an institution in terms of publications. It's, it's been around forever, started as a mailing list. We're really well respected. Um, We've had a ton of fantastic writers over the years and fantastic editors over the years. Um, I sort of started out as a a lowly uh, copy editor and then moved into being a technical editor. And then I got too busy and had to take a break for a while. But then I I was invited back to be the the editor-in-chief, which has been uh, just an amazing experience to get to kind of shape where a list of part is going. But I mean, all of the original... CSS approaches that we use like sliding doors and, and, you know, different ways of building expanding buttons and stuff like that. We're all pioneered in the pages of a list apart. Um, and I feel like we continue to push the the boundaries, not so much with like tips and tricks and techniques, but sort of bigger thinking about how to think how about we, it. Yeah. Yep. How we approach the, the web and, and the work that we do. And, you know, the, we've branched out a lot more into content strategy and user research and um, just more interesting ways of thinking about things. So it's, it's not so much like check out this hot new approach or whatever. I, you know, there are other publications that are doing that really well now and, you know, we don't publish as often, but when we do, it tends to be something that's a, a bit more of a, a thinker and, and, you know, I hope tends to, to have more of a lasting impact on the, the industry. So there you go. Listeners can add it to their RSS feeds. Indeed. And uh, and from list apart, uh, wh- what was the path that took you to working with Microsoft on Edge? Let's see. So when I started, when I started working with the list apart and and such, I mean we're we're an all volunteer staff, so I wouldn't really call it mm. like like it's a job, but it's not a job if that, if that makes sense. Oh, you're um, talking to WordPress people. We know yeah, exactly yeah. what you mean. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I, I was at the time when I started working for them, I was uh, working at an ad agency and I was their, um, their lead uh, developer. And I eventually, through the connections that I had with uh, Molly Holschlag and, and Jeffrey and Adaptive Path, um, was able to kind of jettison out of that into starting my own agency um, which was Easy Designs, and we ran that for a little over ten years. Um, started out just being me, and then uh, we ended up getting larger projects. Like one year, we worked, uh, we did a, a bracket game for um, American Idol. We did some other like large scale projects like that, and uh, I needed to bring on more people, and I needed project management help. So my wife ended up joining me and becoming a project manager. Um, and then she eventually moved into like user research and stuff like that, and, and we just kind of grew. Um, and eventually relocated our business down to Tennessee and we were in Chattanooga for, um, gosh, 10 years basically. Um, and part, part way through that, I think she and I both sort of hit a point where we were like, do we want to continue doing client ah. services? Um, it's fun. Like it wasn't that we were struggling or anything like that, but we were just kind of seeing changes in the, in the industry. And, um, my passion has always very much been around, education, helping people to become better developers, helping like my, my sort of driving mantra is, you know, I tried to do something to make the web a little bit more uh, accessible every day, a little bit more available, a little more egalitarian. Um, Amen. And so, you know, I, I was kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of speaking and writing. Um, at that point I had, uh, I had written the first edition of adaptive web design uh, in addition to contributing to a ton of books. Um, and then I was getting ready to work on the second edition. edition. Um, 
and I was just kind of thinking, you know, what do, what do I want to do? Do I want to continue in client services or do I want to kind of work on this, this sort of passion area, which, you know, honestly, yes, I got stipends to speak at conferences and usually got my travel covered and stuff like that. But when you're running your own freelance business um, or your own agency, like time is money, right? Like yep. all that travel time, all of that time being at conferences, as much as I loved it, like that was time that I was not earning. And um, yep. so that, that sort of was, was burning me out a bit. And so I, I had some opportunity. Uh, we front loaded our year uh, with a, a couple of really big projects and it gave me basically like half a year to kind of think about what it is that I wanted to do and to, to kind of feel that out. And so, you know, I looked at the folks that I had become really good friends with and whose jobs I, I really like admired and, and mm. was like that, that would be something I'd want to do. You know, people like Bruce Lawson, who at the time was working for opera and, um, you know, Christian Heilman and, and such as well, who had was at the time at Mozilla and, um, was like, you know, I'd, I'd kind of like to be an evangelist for the web at some place. And, um, you know, I kind of thought about the different options, explored some, some opportunities. And one of the things that was really appealing to me about coming to Microsoft was that we were still, this is, this is still like late IE days. Um, and, uh, so edge hadn't come out yet and, and it was not even, I don't think it was even in the works when, when I first started there, but we, uh, like I, I, I looked at Microsoft as sort of a scrappy upstart yep. in some ways, um, <laughs> which seems so though, funny, but yeah, yeah, even though it had like market largesse, right? Like yeah. in, in terms of the web community, a lot of people had written it off. Um, but I'd been involved with Microsoft through the web standards project for a number of years since going back to IE seven, I think when we, we kind of put together a, a group we affectionately called the, the JS ninjas where we, um, you know, it's people like, uh, Peter Paul Koch and, um, and some others that were heavily involved in JavaScript. I think John Resig was in that group as well. And we're like, here's, here are the problems that frameworks are trying to solve. And if, mm. if, you know, if you, IE actually like implement the standard here, mm. it makes a lot of library code go away and that would be a good thing for the web. Um, yeah. And so I had I had contacts at, at Microsoft from that um, from that experience, um, and they had also helped with the creation of Web Standard Sherpa, uh, which was another thing that came out of uh, the Web Standards project um, that I that I had also uh, been the publisher for. And so had good relations, reached out and said, "Hey, you know, what do you all think about possibilities?" Because there wasn't really a, a evangelism team for the browser at that point. Yeah. Um, and so we ended up talking for, gosh, six months uh, before it finally materialized. And it was funny because um, I had reached out to Ray Bango, who I had known had been at Microsoft and left um, and basically said, hey, you know, I'm considering going to Microsoft as you know, a, an evangelist for the web. And, you know, what did you think about when you were there, like how, how did you enjoy it and stuff like that? And, and he kind of gave me his, his opinion. Little did I know he was actually trying to form a, a developer evangelist team for the browser at Microsoft and he was going to be going back there. And so ah, uh, ah, he, was, nice. he was somewhat selling me on the idea of coming to work with him, even though I didn't know I would be coming to work for him. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so, so I came to Microsoft in um, early 2015 and um did a lot of kind of your, your standard evangelist stuff, lots of writing and lots of speaking engagements and, and things like that, um, which was great. We we bounced bounced around in orgs a little bit because our whole team was remote and a lot of Microsoft so was not at, able to be remote at the time. Yeah. At this point, you're what going to conferences and trying to convince people that IE was worth worth the time. Yes and no. I mean. I was always doing that because I, I think folks should be taking into account all browsers that people are using as opposed to right. only the browsers that we use. I think, you know, when, when we only focus on the browsers we use, we, we make it harder for people who don't use the same tools we do to actually access that content. And that to me is a problem. Um, and when I approached Microsoft about coming, I was like, first off, I am not going to be out there like a shill for Microsoft products. It's just not who mm -hmm. I'm going to be. And as long as y'all are cool with that, that, you know, like I'm, that. 
I'm, I'm going to come and I'm going to talk about standards. I'm going to talk about how people should be building for the web. I'm going to talk about accessibility. All of so it's stuff. not, it's not, you should use internet Explorer. It's you should right. build in a way that's safe for all of the people who are using internet Explorer. Exactly. Exactly. And, the and others, all of the yeah. people who are using old versions of internet Explorer that they can't upgrade yeah. because, you know, for some reason they can't upgrade their windows license. Like I remember hearing, I don't remember where this story originated, but um, I think there was a, an article about it that, um, at a Costco eye center, maybe um, somebody had noticed that like they were just making small talk with the person behind the, the counter, the, the ophthalmologist. And um, they noticed that there was a windows update that they had. And they're like, Oh, you've got a, you've got a windows update and there. And this kind of kicked off a conversation with the person where they're like, yeah, I know this is an old version of windows, but I can't upgrade it because if I upgrade it, I have to buy a new license for the software that runs my business. And that's $10,000 and I can't mm-hmm. afford to do that. So I have to be on this old version of Windows. And to me, that was like, wow, you know, here's here. Like we talk a lot about people not upgrading and we kind of like badger them about why aren't you upgrading to the latest and greatest, blah, blah, blah. But there are real material reasons that people may not be able to upgrade to a particular browser. And who are we to tell them that they shouldn't be able to access their bank account? Wow. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like that's that's what I think about this stuff. These days. These days we have build tools that will automatically, based on usage percentages, build out support for various different browsers. What are the magic numbers, do you think? When, when you're building a project, like what if, if uh, you know, a browser is, is used by less than 1% of people, should our project still support it? Or is it half a percent or is it 5%? What's the numbers, do you think? I don't like numbers and percentages and stats in that way. Yeah, I mean, to be okay. honest, um, so Tell I want to, I, I want to build basically the 1965 Chrysler Imperial of a website. Um, and so the, the 1965 Chrysler Imperial has actually been banned from the demolition derby, um, because it's basically indestructible. Um, so I, I want to build <laughs> websites that will, will be resilient enough to work no matter what. Um, and so I, I don't know how I obtained this, gift or superpower, but I have, I have the ability to break stuff very easily, it seems. Um, so I tend to find all the, the edge cases and stuff, um, for websites or, or I, I run into them all the time. And so, you know, I, I don't like relying on browser stats because I think they can be misleading in a number of ways. I think okay. if we look at global browser stats, that tells us nothing about what that means for our customers, right? So that's that's problem number one. Yep. If we look at our own browser stats, those can also be colored in multiple ways. Um, so I remember. Yeah. Oh, oh uh, can I can I interject with a yeah, yeah. with a personal favorite sure. theory of mine? My favorite theory, and and I want to get your your take on this, is that I think that the web um, it has an incentive to become less private over time. Because people who care about privacy, which I include myself in that group, will use things like content blockers to you know, get rid of, for example, Google Analytics scripts and things like this. And so then the, the website is looking at their analytics to decide well, how many people are using this browser or this or whatever it is. And all of the people who care about privacy are being excluded from the decision-making process. Is that a real thing? No, absolutely. I mean, I, so um, I I would consider that like the oversight thing, which I, I I would bucket in there as well. The people who don't have JavaScript, because there's there's a lot of people who are out there making claims. Oh, you know, we looked at our analytics and we don't have any people who who don't have JavaScript <laughs> available. And then I'm like, are you using the standard Google Analytics like method of of collecting that? And they're like, yeah. What technology does that rely on? JavaScript. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of yeah. sense. So if they don't have JavaScript, you don't record them. And like, if you're not adding your browser logs to that as well, like you've got nothing. Um, and you know, I think there's also an aspect of um, what I would term artificial suppression, where yeah. we are providing a um, unusable experience in particular browsers, and therefore we do not see a high concentration of those browsers in in our stats. So there's actually a piece on a list apart that um, talked about this happening with us when, gosh, this was years ago. So redesign at a list apart basically stopped serving 
advanced CSS to Netscape 4. So that gives you kind of a sense of the, the era that this is taking place in, right? Um, so stop delivering CSS to Netscape 4. And then the percentage of readers who are using Netscape 4 went up because all of a sudden we weren't putting a barrier. So yeah. we, weren't, we weren't making them try to interpret and, and, uh, and apply designs and styles that were Whoa. not working well in the browser. Um, so, so we were artificially suppressing our usage from Netscape. And I, I think there are lots of instances like that where, you know, you talk to people and they're like, um, oh, we don't, we don't have any folks on XYZ browser. Well, what's the experience in that browser? Oh, it sucks. Yeah, maybe that's the reason. Um, and I think a lot of times we do. It's it's very easy to have that kind of myopic view where we we look around us. You know, not not so much in the office now, but you know, we we look around us and see lots of people with expensive shiny bricks. Um, you know, on high speed networks and stuff like that. And we don't think about um, the experience for everyone else. Like I remember, I was doing some consulting for a major retailer here in the the states and. Uh, this is a drugstore retailer and they were like, I was talking to them about their test matrix and, and what devices they were using if they had a device lab and that sort of stuff. Cause I, I also used to run a, an open device lab. Um, and so they're like, yeah, we've got, you know, a, a couple iPads, some iPhones, we've got, you know, a, an Android device or two. And I'm like, do you have any of the devices that you sell? And there was crickets. Like they oh, just wow. had not realized that they actually sell super low end Android tablets and and other like netbooks and stuff like that in their retail stores, and that you know people might want to use those to be able to <laughs> let's say renew their prescription. Um, yeah, you know I think right. there's a, there's a lot of things like that that we just kind of get lulled into this false sense of security around you know what people are using um, mm-hmm. and. You know, we see it all the time that, you know, when the latest iPhone comes out, actually sales of the old iPhones go up um, because now all of a sudden people are ditching their old old versions. And so people who didn't have the the financial means to pick up a you know thousand plus dollar device yeah. can all of a sudden get it on the secondary market cheaper. And we'll see, an, you know, an impact so, of those devices. And so so you're going to be on my team here in, in our and uh, Jonathan and I's constant argument about which podcast recording thing that we use because you know these days they're all web-based things and none of them support safari and i'm not having it jonathan well i was i was kind of surprised the one the one that we're using today um it i had seen that it required chrome but when i opened it up in edge which is chromium Mm -hmm. it was saying that it was an unsupported browser and it wouldn't upload and i was like are you kidding me it's like it's the same browser uh, yeah. Under the hood, like all of the APIs are the same, and y'all are like not you all, Jonathan, yeah. But the recording what do you have company, to say for yourself, yeah. Oh, I'm gonna let them know because uh, I felt the same because it's like it's it's frustrating. Like I, Chrome is not my primary browser. I res- like as as it's I respect. I think it's fantastic. It's a pain to like be using Safari comfortably and then just like okay, I can't use it over here. Do you know what I'm gonna do today? I'm gonna create a WordPress plugin that just uh, detects there's a browser detection, and if it's Chrome. It's going to change the site to. Sorry, this is not a supporter. Support That's, <laughs> That's terrible. That's um, terrible. Well, every every other browser pretends to be Chrome and its user agent string. So good luck figuring that one out. Oh, <laughs> okay, great. Um, I want to circle back to something that you were talking about earlier with like not not li- liking to use percentages and building just like these solid solid websites, which you know I I can absolutely relate to. I love. I've I've often toyed with the idea of ditching WordPress and just writing some real basic HTML and and doing it that way. Uh, but what about some of these these new tech, new JavaScript tech that's that sort of mainstream and it's the new standard these days? Like people writing JSX code and 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 ES6 and all of that has to be compiled. Um, and that actually just the process of of compiling some of running, having to run Webpack is something that's brand new, relatively speaking, for the web. When it comes to that, though, if that's if that's the standard, you sort of do have to take into consideration percentages, right? Um, I mean, I think it, I think it all is is we're on a constant like pendulum swing, going one direction mm-hmm. and the other. Um, I think we we race out ahead to do like Ajax, for instance. Like I remember mm-hmm. when Ajax was was the new hotness when Google Maps launched and, and such. 
Um, and, and when Jesse James Garrett coined the term Ajax, that you know, everybody was rushing to do that. And I remember that was when we first started to see sort of the skeleton site that would assemble from, uh, like have this basic frame that was totally uh, unusable until JavaScript came in and like filled in the content. Um, and then the pendulum swung the other way and people realized that, Hey, you know, this isn't such a good idea. So like, I'll give you, give you an example of it not being such a good idea. Um, so this was years and years ago when, when there was a Gawker media, um, they launched their, um, their like new platform for all of their sites. So Lifehacker, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it was a singular platform. It was all JavaScript driven and I mean, they're, they're effectively all blogs, right? It's like just all news. Yeah. Um, but when they flipped the switch to turn on these new versions of all of the sites, there was one JavaScript error and all of their sites were dead in the water. Like mm-hmm. none of them rendered at all. <laughs> and um, the, the sort of, I, I don't know, best part <laughs> or like the, the most amusing part of that was that most of them had loading spinners that were just never going to resolve. Um, you know, they, I, I will say they fixed that eventually. Um, but I think, you know, we, we tend to race out with these technologies and, and all of this excitement around, you know, things like react or, or like Ember before that. And, you know, uh, knockout backbone, like all, all of these things we've, we've seen it over and over again in a cycle. Right. Um, but a lot of times we race out ahead with this stuff and then we realize, oh, you know, like there, there are some problems with this, that whether it's problems with SEO, problems with performance, problems with, you know, the amount of RAM consumption taking place on the, the client side. Um, and it's a real push and pull between, um, I think between developer convenience and user experience. Um, and right now I feel like a lot of our effort seem like institutional effort within within the industry is focused on developer convenience and like how quickly can we write apps and deploy apps and stuff like that and and we're shoving a ton of javascript across the wire into people's browsers you know in some cases they may be on a device that is ram limited and you know that that framework you know would not work right or or like right now i'm i'm thinking about because I work a lot in the PWA space. And so one of the things that I've been trying to ideate on for like the last two years is like, how can we get to the point where a PWA could offer, let's say, a widget, right, to, to be added to, you know, a dashboard or a home screen or something like that. Um, and one of the problems that I keep running into just kind of as as I'm thinking about this is like, somebody is going to try and load all of React into their widget and somebody else is too. And now you've got this like widget host that's yeah. loading like umpteen versions of React and it's just going to crumble. Like it, it is not sustainable. And we need to we need to have guardrails on that, wow. which is why I think there's there's kind of this swing back to server-side rendering and how can we kind of have the best of both worlds? How can we have, you know, maybe a a site that is partially static but still has the the sort of I don't know, zippy feel of a single page app. And and so I think there's some really interesting explorations going on there into how we can build something that is robust and that's going to work all the time, um, but still have that sort of, I don't know, the engaging feel that we get with things that are, you know, more, more reactive and, and what have you. A couple of years back. Uh, so Luke and I have both been heavily involved in the world of WordPress for a long time. A couple of years back, I started to shift my thinking a bit to think, to think about the open web more broadly and just the web as a whole. And one of the, the questions I asked myself was like, well, what, what does open web mean? Like, what, what, is, this, what is this idea? So I'm going to offer a, a definition because I, I did some searching and found different thoughts and ideas and ultimately settled on something. I, I want to get your reactions to it. For me, like the web itself is this like digital network of connections, right? Like it's, it's incredible if you just, when, the further you get into it, it's, it's pretty incredible. Sometimes it's incredible that it works, right? You think about all the different parts and pieces. For me, the open web is an ideal state, and it has a few characteristics. The first one in my mind is that it's as accessible as possible, and it's this idea that anyone should be able to connect to it. The second, and, and that can be unpacked in a lot of different ways, right? I love the, 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 the gopher experience you described at the beginning, right? We often just think about how we access it when we're building, and we don't think about our audience and how they might get to it. And, and it's challenging, and it's something that 
that's why to me it's important to think of it as an ideal state because it's always a moving target, right? Like it's not just a thing that you do and you're done. The second characteristic in my mind is this idea that I, I call it creatability, your ability to create something on the web. This is where my interest in WordPress really comes in. I, I love these proprietary platforms and, and the innovation and the things that they provide. At the end of the day, though, there's this like limitation where it's like it's not really yours. Open source as this like foundation gives you this ability to innovate and create your own things. So for me, it's like the open web, it's fine for these things to, these closed ecosystems to exist. It's great. They provide value. At the end of the day, though, I want to invest my time and energy into making the web more accessible and a place where people can contribute and make things on it. I'm, I'm playing with this third idea, which is something about the ability for people to connect with each other. I, I feel I have concerns about walled gardens where it's like too much of like, hey, I can't get to someone unless I'm also in that. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? Like you've been in this space a long time. Does that resonate with you? Do you think of it differently? No, no, I think that does. Um, you know, I, I think about, you know, kind of the, the way that like, Microsoft has this inclusive design uh, guidelines and, and book and stuff like that, that that's really useful. And the way they frame kind of what you were first going for is like the, when we design for people like us, we exclude anyone not like us. And so like <laughs> getting, getting to the, the thought of like, how do we, how do we, build in an egalitarian way and in an inclusive way. And I think that, you know, accessibility is certainly a part of that. I think thinking about um, different life situations that people are Mm -hmm. in, um, the circumstances that they're in, the, you know, how much cognitive overhead they're dealing with, you know, we're, we're in the midst of a pandemic as we're recording this and and people are stressed and people, when we're stressed, we don't read as well. Um, You know, and, and so thinking about how we're writing and thinking about how we're conveying information, um, you know, all of that certainly factors into that. And, you know, the ability for people to contribute absolutely to your second point is, is a huge part of that. And I think the, the third piece, which seems to be where you're getting at, is sort of the, the extensibility and interconnectedness that is enabled by a truly open web. So I, I think, you know, there's there's sort of the capital S, capital W, semantic web that, that Tim Berners-Lee and others were working on back in the day. And, you know, that hasn't really uh, borne fruit in the way I think that they wanted it to. But I think there's a lot of opportunity with through things like microformats, I think, you know, back back a couple of years to, um, you know, the late aughts uh, when microformats were taking off and folks were starting to use particular class names to markup content that was um, yeah. that was consistent, like people's contact information or or an event or something like that. And what's really interesting about that, where schema.org is another approach to doing this with microdata, right? And um, when you have that information conveyed in the markup or just good semantic HTML to begin with, you can really use that for doing more. Um, and so I, you know, some of the examples that I use is like I, I did a... Um, an email template for a client um, back when I was in client services that they could put the um, the information about a particular event that they were having into the template. And this was all done through MailChimp. And because I know that MailChimp creates a web page version of that email, I was then able to route that through a microformats parser and basically generate an ICS file dynamically um, and have that link on the email so that you could click the link and add it to your your thing without having to have them manually generate an ICS file because I was able to just use semantics, right? Like it, it just yeah. Um, wow. And so I love that sort of stuff. Um, and you know, kind of in in my talks that I've done on um, starting to think about like conversational UIs and how we can start to design web pages for voice. You know, I I think about a hopefully not too distant future where we can say things to our smart speakers and basically say, Hey, can you read me the top five headlines from XYZ website? And it could go and say, okay, here are, you know, five articles and here are their headings. And so I can capture that and read that back because that is all semantically exposed. And if it's, if it's all divs, it's nothing, right? It's, it's has no semantic value whatsoever. Um, Wow. But if we think about this stuff in terms of the purpose of markup being structured data, um, we can really achieve some pretty amazing experiences and interactions, um, but we have to put the thought into it. 
you know, there, there aren't a lot of people who are out there sort of experiencing, do y'all remember CSS naked day back in the, back in the day? I do. Um, yeah. Turn it off. Yeah. yeah. Where you would turn off your, your CSS, um, for the day, Dustin Diaz, if I remember correctly, was the person who came up with that. Very Um, scary. Yeah. But you'd turn off your CSS for the day and see like, what does your page look like? Um, and this was a really good way of sort of keeping you honest about your markup. And yes, you know, the browser default styles may not be the best, but they're pretty usable. Um, and if you paid attention to that and did good semantic markup and and uh, and such, if your CSS didn't load, your site was still usable. Um, but also, when, once we started getting the sort of reader modes in browser, hey, you know what? They pay attention to that same stuff. And you, you end up with a much more usable reading experience in that reader mode because you use proper semantics. Um, and, and so I think a lot about that stuff. I think a lot about sort of the... Um, the barriers that we put in place by creating additional dependencies on what it is that we're building. So like you can, you can build a form and then have, you know, a, a button to submit that form. And that button could be made in any of a number of ways, right? You can build it with an input type submit or button type submit, or you could build it with an anchor uh, or you can build it with a div or what have you in markup, right? The, um, if it's a form and you're using input type submit or button type submit, it will submit the form. It will also take focus via the keyboard. Um, it will be accessible uh, to be clicked with a mouse or with your finger or with um, a keyboard by hitting either enter or space. If you use an anchor, it's focusable. Um, it, it is not activatable, see if I remember correctly. I don't think it's activatable by the enter key, but it is by the space or maybe it's vice versa. I always mm. forget. But without CSS, it doesn't look like a button. It looks like underlying text. Yeah. Um, and it's not actually going to submit the form because it's a link, right? Yeah. Um, the div has none of those affordances. It's not even focusable. So you, you end up needing to add additional markup to add it into the tab index. You need to add CSS to make it look that way. You need to add a ton of JavaScript to be able to you know, manage focus and to submit the form and all this stuff. So you're, you're creating all of these layers of dependencies that if any of those fail, um, it's inaccessible. It's unusable by people. And I think a lot about, about this when, when people, you know, kind of going back to that first uh, list of part article I was telling you about when we were building tabbed interfaces that wouldn't work without JavaScript. You know, you would have this, you know, tabbed markup and this beautiful view of something that looked like a tabbed interface, but you couldn't actually get to the second panel. Yeah. Um, and to me, like, I never want to create that experience where something, you know, looks like it should be interactive, but it's <laughs> not because that's a horrible user experience. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, we just need to be just more aware of sort of what the the decisions are that we're making and, and what the implications of those are, what the trade-offs are, uh, all of that sort of stuff. So let me let me redirect this conversation back to WordPress now, Aaron, because I, I know you're not necessarily a WordPress uh, kind of guy. Um, you're not in, in the WordPress world, a contributor in the same way that... that uh, that our listeners are often and, and the way that Jonathan and I are, but you do use WordPress, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you're probably familiar with the Gutenberg, the new editor. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you're familiar with the crisis that WordPress is currently facing. I, I mean, there have been numerous crises over the years. <laughs> Jonathan doesn't even know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I, don't, I don't know which one in particular you're talking about. I mean, yeah. I, I, I definitely remember the huge kerfuffle when it was talking about like the accessibility of Gutenberg or lack thereof back in the, yeah. the early days. Um, it's gotten better. Yeah. yeah, that's that's what I've heard as well. Um, I don't know what the, the latest uh, latest issues are. but well, Well, there's a bit of a confusion at the moment because coming – I mean, it was supposed to be at the end of this year, but it's not going to be coming at at some point in the future. Is full site editing, and this concept of being able to uh, log into your WordPress admin and change the styles of your of your website, your global styles, and rearrange your uh, templates so that you got your maybe you want to put your header at the bottom or your sidebar on the right instead of the left, or put your navigation in you know a different um, arrangement and it's got theme authors and agencies just uh, with the with a little bit of caution there because I remember what happened with Gutenberg wasn't such a smooth rollout and it's it's really got a lot of people wondering what's what's the future of themes how do themes adapt 
to a world where the user can actually change everything about the layout of the site and uh, the user can actually come in and just change the style, the colors and the uh, size of the headings and the fonts and things like this. And so as we, as sort of the WordPress community starts to reimagine what themes look like and how themes work, what advice would you give? What would what would be some of the underlying principles that you'd want to want to give people as they embark upon this, like figuring out, all right, how do we do these themes now? Oh gosh, I mean, if I'm honest, this reminds me a heck of a lot of what we used to go to in the the days of like building sites in Dreamweaver, right? Like the mm-hmm. the constant thing when when we would build sites, it you know we we would you know, half joke as agencies that we would hand the site off to, you know, a customer and, you know, at, at some point within, you know, six months to a year, it would be broken and they would be coming back to us because, you know, they, they messed with something that they shouldn't have, um, which led us to, you know, at least in terms of, of our practice, we, we got very specific about what we were, you know, permitting access to and not permitting access to and, and sort of providing them with reasons why certain things were done certain ways and trying to give them the flexibility to add in the ways and grow in the ways that they needed to and, and kind of planned for. Um, but, you know, trying trying to make it really hard for them to uh, undermine the usability and accessibility of their site in as, in as many ways as possible. So I think, you know, from a theme builder standpoint, you know, I, I can't speak to the the sort of internals of, of how themes are created, but I think having, you know, a, a style guide with additional details around why certain decisions are the way that they are and um, having a set of, of sort of sanctioned permutations of a design is a good route to go um, where you can kind of take into account the different ways that your site may need to adapt. I mean, I, it's, it's somewhat similar to responsive design in that same way that we had to think about, you know, how, how do our designs fit into all of these differently sized screens? Um, and in the same way, how do I create a, um, a truly flexible, adaptive, whatever you want to call it, like theme for, uh, for WordPress and, and create a, a certain set of, um, adaptations that that are fully supported and you know recommended and have been thought through um because i think that's that's the risk like same thing happened with desktop publishing back in the day right like all of a sudden people got the ability to to change the font and you ended up with a newsletter that had 37 fonts on one page right um you know if if you give people the keys to be able to adjust anything they will and it it will you know in many ways potentially undermine the um the original vision for whatever it was or, or you know what it was that they bought to begin with and and so you know to some degree you don't own it anymore because you yeah. you've like sold it to them so it's it's like it's you can't be precious about it but at the same time I think you if you're concerned about their end product and not about your product then you you think about how how might this need to adapt to a variety of needs um and you know perhaps that means and and again not in the the wordpress space all that much so i don't know if there are themes that are more heavily focused in in different verticals but maybe they're become yeah, like hyper focused themes niche niche yeah. themes that are like we have 17 different approaches to product pages and like these things can be moved around depending on what the priority is these things are optional you know all those sorts of things um where they do really build in a robust experience. And um, I think that's sort of the the route that I would suggest folks start to think about is like, okay, I've got my vision and I've got my my reason that I'm approaching things in the way that I am for this design. Now, how do I make that able to adapt to the reality on the ground and, and how the the things may change over time in terms of the needs for that and and how can it adapt in a way that um, bends rather than breaks, if that makes sense. 
As we as we move to wrap up, I so WordPress has grown a lot over the years, right? We're coming up on fifty percent. Uh, if you look at stats, right, depending on how you think about that, of like the the web as it's as it's tracked. And one of the things that I I I find myself increasingly thinking of WordPress as an indicator of it's it's an indicator of the health of the open web as a whole. Like in some ways, there's, it has a lot of influence. Like when something lands in WordPress, it has there's a ripple effect to that, yep. positive and negative. I've seen a lot of positive over the years. From your position, seeing standards over the years, seeing what you've seen, uh, being working within a browser team for the for those working on the project. Uh, and I'd say a lot of people who work in WordPress have that deep care for the open web. So you have, see a lot of careful thought and, and decisions being put into things. What guidance do you have to offer from your position as you think about the future of the web and the influence that the WordPress project has? What, what do you want to see more of in WordPress? What types of and, questions would you encourage us to ask and, and where should we focus? And, and I'll add a little side question to that if you can if you can do two at once, which is with your work on the on the Edge browser, how much does WordPress's influence on the web uh, affect your day-to-day or the decisions that Edge makes? All right, I'll take the the first piece first, um, which I don't know that there are specific things that I would ask of the WordPress community apart from expand your bubble, right? Um, Increase the sphere of influence that you have, whether that's diversifying your Twitter timeline or, you know, changing up the the RSS feeds that you subscribe to, hearing from voices from other communities, and especially people who don't have the same lived experiences as you, is invaluable towards creating a product that can be used by all of those people. And, and, you know, you can't build something to help folks if you don't know what their problems are. And I think you know, part and parcel of that, I would also say co-design is a is a really important thing and actually working with communities. The, the disability community has a great phrase, which is nothing about us without us. So getting involvement from those communities and having them work on, you know, helping with the features, you know, I, I don't know that there are, but, you know, maybe there are certain things about WordPress that are, you know, privacy related that, you know, certain uh, groups would be really, you know, interested in seeing solved or, you know, this, that, and the other that, that would be um, important to different constituencies. And basically, I mean, from a, from a, you know, not, I mean, WordPress kind of is a business, but kind of not a business depending on which way you look at it. But like, you know, in, in terms of potential customer outreach, the, the more you can, help the product be what folks need, the more likely it is to be uh, picked up and used by those folks. Um, so I, I would say that would be my my big call out would be to to sort of diversify your your sphere of influence in order to build your awareness of, of everything else that's kind of going on in the world that you may not be aware of. Um, Great. In terms of the second question, you know, how much does, how much of an impact does uh, WordPress have on us? Um, from my perspective, not not honestly a whole lot. Obviously, we we take into account what's what's going on in terms of, you know, making sure that you know Gutenberg, for instance, runs really well in in Edge. That's not my team, but you know, there there are folks that do pay attention to that sort of stuff. Um, but I will say that you know when I first started working in PWAs and PWAs started to first become a thing, we we pretty much immediately reached out to the WordPress folks and, you know, tried to figure out like, what do we need to do to help enable WordPress to quickly and easily help folks create PWAs? And and what can we do to support that? And we had a, had a bunch of phone conversations with, with various teams working on the, the WordPress pro- project, um, both within automatic and, and outside. Um, and, you know, I think stuff like that, like we, we saw, huge value in reaching out to WordPress to to gain adoption of new standards and to try and figure out ways to make that easier for folks to take advantage of within WordPress just because of of how much of the web WordPress uh, powers. Awesome. Well, Aaron, it has been such a good conversation. I really feel like you're my people. I, I want to tell you about the ugly web sometime when we have a bit more time to, to talk about it. Um, but... Thank you so much for coming on Crossword. It's been a great episode of Perspectives. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate y'all having me on. Aaron, if people are interested in learning more about what you're up to, where where's uh, where can they find more? 
Um, probably Twitter is the best place at Aaron Gustafson. Um, and I, I blog occasionally at Aaron-Gustafson.com. Um, otherwise, you know, I, th- I think Twitter is probably the best place. If folks have ideas they want to share, uh, they can reach out to submit at a list apart if they're interested in potentially writing for us. Um, yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us, Aaron. Yeah. Thanks again for having me.